Okay, if you haven't gone to the Mormon Renegade Patreon page and signed up for at least a $6 package, you might want to do that right now. This episode has a lot of cool slides in the video that you're going to want to keep a hold of. One of the tactics commonly used by detractors of the restored gospel is to call into question the veracity of the book of Abraham. They will tell you that it is simply a work of fiction based on the imagination of the prophet Joseph Smith when he bought some mummies. However, those detractors aren't giving you the full story or being completely forthcoming with all the evidence. This serves to cause some to doubt their testimony of the restored gospel without ever hearing the full story. Well, on this episode, I have Ken Peterson back on the podcast, and we're going to do our best Paul Harvey and give you the rest of the story on the book of Abraham with all the information and context. By the end of this podcast, you'll be able to come away not only still believing in the book of Abraham, but also knowing that the book's historicity is not in doubt. And that's next on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Look, it's no secret that our society has become much more crude and coarse. To become and raise men and women of virtue and character is a Herculean task. To help with this, I have recently wrote and published a book. Now, back in the 1700s, Washington had a book called Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation. It was a book with 110 rules that talked about how to conduct yourself like a civilized person in society, something that today's society is sorely lacking. What I did is I went back through the book and I reinterpreted his original sayings for the 21st century. So the book is laid out in a way in which you see Washington's original rule. Right below that is my explanation for the 21st century. And below that, you'll find two or three examples of where to use this in the real world. Now, to go along with this, there's a workbook that helps parents teach these principles and practices to their kids. To find the book, go to mormonrenegade.com, go to the bottom of the page, Search out the blog post and order your copy today. I can bear personal testimony from personal experience that this is an invaluable tool to help you raise men and women of virtue and character. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. And my man. Dude, I got to tell you, when I was down for the Glenn Beck thing earlier this week, it was so nice to meet you in person. Likewise. And it was so fun to visit with you in person and to realize... You're just as nice in person as you are over Zoom. <laughs> well, I kind of felt bad for you, right? Because I'm like coming in your house and you're like, whoa, his waistline's way larger than I would have imagined from the screen. No way. No way. <laughs> I didn't feel that at all. It was it was great fun. And I was especially, I know how busy you are and how many things you had planned. So I was especially um, flattered that you would take time out of your busy schedule. You kidding me, come, man? You're one of my favorites. <laughs> thank you i'll take that opportunity anytime i get thanks so, that was... so as as we got talking on our last episode at the end because newsflash for everybody else when i wrap up and say see everybody later uh that's not the end for me and my guests we, <laughs> we chat a little bit afterwards and ken had like some amazing ideas and one of those that he had was something that trips a lot of mormons up and that is the book of Abraham and the historicity of the book of Abraham. Because 
Ken, correct me if I'm wrong. That's like one of the main things that the the both the never Mormons and the disgruntled faction of Mormonism, I guess, love to attack. Right for a while, they glommed on really hard to the CES letter, and then through the work of like folks like Sarah Allen. Um, she's done a great job in defending that. And then, oh, by the way, we found horses, you know, in 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 pre-Columbus America. That poses a problem, right? So, but Book of Abraham, they really glom onto an attack. That's been my experience. In fact, I have a good friend uh, <laughs> who confided in me that he had his uh, name removed from the records of the church because of the Book of Abraham. I said, well, you know the whole story, right? And he goes, what do you mean? And I told him the whole story. And he's like, wow, I didn't know that. And so, and the information, well, and anytime we talk about things like this, of a scholarly nature, and people say, well, I've done my research and uh, left the church. My question to them is, when you say research, did you fully examine both sides? Because if you haven't, that's not research. That's propaganda. And both sides are amply represented online, if you know where to look. Um, and, and I'm one who encourages people, just like Joseph Smith did, to live how you choose. Mm -hmm. We claim the privilege of worshiping the God Almighty according to the dictates of our own conscience. And we want all others to do the same, and we'll, and we'll fight for others to do that. But... I think the only thing that gets to me is when people make those decisions without having investigated everything, you know, which right. is called, which is called deception. Yep. You know, yep. and what you will find and what you will see in tonight's discussion, critics of the church in particular things related to the book of Abraham are very good at not telling you everything. They only tell you the things that would manipulate you to do what they want you to do. And why there are people out there who want to crush poor Mormons' testimonies, I don't fully understand that. But there, I know for a fact that there are those in this world that is their desire. They dream of such things. They, they enjoy that. It's really sick. But it is kind of sick. No, it, it really is because... The, the the, I love what you said there. When people say they've done their research, usually what that means is they, they've encountered like White House Ministries or mm -hmm. they've encountered an Egyptologist who said, oh, no, that that facsimile is from the book of the, the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Oh, right? this is good. <laughs> they haven't spent any time researching both sides of the argument, right? Yeah. They feel right. like they've gotten the full story on the book of Abraham without ever diving in and really doing the scholarly work to find out if it's true or not. And there's a certain amount of hubris involved in that, a certain amount of, I mean, do they really believe they're the only Mormon who has ever lived who has stumbled across these things? Mm -hmm. Are they not aware that there are old Mormons like me out there who've read everything already. And much of what, what I'm going to refer to today, that was available knowledge in 1987. That was the first book I read, and probably the most informative book I read 
on the facsimile, on the facsimiles and their interpretation. So, I mean, if, if it were me stumbling across this stuff, I would think certainly there are Latter-day Saints out there who have answers or who can explain both sides of this. So before I do anything rash or run crying to my mommy, well, that wasn't a nice thing to say. Why don't I investigate this and talk to people who've been down this path before? Right. Because as but, you and I have talked before, there are people out there who know more than all of us put together. Yep. And are devout, more devout as Latter-day Saints. As statistics have demonstrated, the more educated, and this is contrary to the statistics of all other Christian faiths or uh, religiosities in the United States, at least, that in the Latter-day Saint faith, the more education you have, the more devote, the more devout you are, yep. which is contrary to other faiths. The more education they have, the less devout they are. And that's not true with Mormonism. And it has to do with LDS scholarship. It's you know, and, and here's the thing. When, when people, when people, when people criticize like this, I, I don't get offended. Right. I'm like, okay, well, let's look at the evidence. Right. Yeah. One is, is that I've been through the fire a little bit, so I know what yeah. it's like to have your back up against the wall right. and have to re-examine everything you believe, right? I remember when I first came into Mormonism, well, and this was a little bit before, right? Like, I stopped drinking, I stopped doing drugs, right. and then I started reading a whole bunch. And like, yeah. I think I freaked the person out at Barnes & Noble because I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to find the truth of everything, no matter where it is. So like, I must have had like the 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 reading library of a schizophrenic because i would go from like <laughs> you know the communist manifesto to adam smith and the wealth of nations right and so it was just i was like we're gonna find out where this where this goes and i would say this if, if you're finding something that's challenging here that's a good sign i think that's something that tells you you're a thinker right oh yeah now, before, but I would caution before you just throw the baby out with the bathwater, do your homework, right? Don't take what I have to say as gospel ever. I am a flawed man with many, many character flaws. Ken is way better than I am, but he's still more. <laughs> go, go do your own research, right? Don't just take our word for it. Well, that's the nature of true scholarship is to fully investigate all sides before you make a decision. And I think that's one of the reasons why you and I hit it off from the very beginning. We tend to think alike. And I was right. going, as I was going over mountains of information in preparation for tonight, reviewing all of these things and trying to um, put it together in a useful fashion. Once again, my skeptical mind is overwhelmed with the impossibility of what Joseph Smith did, as we yeah. will see. It's almost as if he was showing off. I mean, of course he wasn't. He was acting as a prophet, but it is, to this day, it boggles my mind that he was able to do what he did. Yeah. Or I should say that God was able to do what he did. Absolutely. Through, through a mortal. Joseph Absolutely. So yeah. real quick, give us a rundown of what, what the book of Abraham is. Where did we get it? Let's just assume nobody has that backstory. Awesome. Awesome. And this let's, is, let's start there. So as you, you see the screen, we're, what we're going to talk about tonight, given time, an introduction to the whole topic. Then we'll dive right into the criticism, starting from the worst to the best. Then my favorite, we're going to dive into the home runs. 
Nice. The impossible bullseyes, whatever you want to call them. And inevitably, there's going to be some overlap because in answering the criticisms, which is uh, which has always been the rewarding thing for me as I study criticisms of the restoration, is that in answering in when you when you get past the half truth and get the whole answer, it's miraculous. The vindication is, it, it, I always kind of I come out of it like I did tonight again, just reviewing this stuff, going, I can't believe it. Yeah, I can't believe how true this whole thing is. Anyway, and then uh, <clears throat> once we get past the home runs, if there's still time around midnight, I want to get into uh, the profound doctrines. I mean, it, it's fun for me to talk about the ins and outs and the criticisms and the refutations, of the book of Abraham, Abraham, but it's true value to us is the doctrines that we get from it, which well, is really and, quite amazing. <laughs> and there, without getting specific, there's so much overlap between the temple ceremony and and the book of abraham right now you're getting into one of the other topics on the list yeah, okay i'll 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 back off i'll back off all right let's oh start. no no but i want to i want to address that because we do i want to talk about that another time but what most people don't understand and in fact this is a topic i didn't put on that list i gave you the freemasonry and the temple <laughs> you know with that the anti Critics love to jump on that bandwagon and say, you know, those Mormons, they just stole everything from Freemasonry. So in a nutshell. Yeah, I'm not ready to go out with this full tilt, but you and I are going to talk for about five minutes after the podcast because I have a theory and I want to run it by you. Well, for Father's Day, I just got uh, uh, Jeffrey Bradshaw's latest 400 page volume on Freemasonry and the Illinois nice. Temple, which and nice. the, the, the arguments and the issues involved I've been familiar with for some time, but of course he, he's very good at documenting everything. So I can't wait to tear into that. But in a nutshell, less than 2% of what occurs within our temple rites has any similarity at all mm-hmm. to, Freema- to Freemasonry. Right. And close to 100% of what we do, you will find in these um, ancient extra canonical texts in my book, 50 pages of it. How do you explain that? Number one. Number two, Joseph Smith didn't enter the temple until 1840. It didn't become a Freemason until 1842. Right. The significant restored temple teachings he was teaching and studying in 1835, seven years ahead of the game, because of the Book of Abraham, because of his work on that. Right, right. Yeah. So we'll see how significant and this is, well, to get into it, right? So, so what is the Book of Abraham? Well, in here you can see the map. This is a map of Egypt, ancient Egypt. So in 1835, while in Kirtland, Joseph Smith, on behalf of the church, purchased four Egyptian mummies and each mummy had their own papyrus at least one from a guy named Michael Chandler we'll get to that backstory they paid two thousand four hundred dollars in 1835 for that collection now remember how the saints were living in Kirtland they were Mm -hmm. paupers they had nothing they were struggling just for housing and somehow they coughed up what today the equivalent would be eighty-two thousand dollars 
to purchase four mummies in their papyri. How curious. How I mean, why would they do that? Why would they $82,000? People were just struggling to live. And they coughed up 82 grand for some old mummies and papyri. They didn't even know how many papyri because the papyri were, were tucked inside the mummies. Right. Anyway, uh, this Michael Chandler had acquired them in 1833. He had acquired 11 of them. And he'd been touring throughout the, uh, the United States at the time, which is East Coast, uh, making money off of them. He'd already sold seven. Prior to meeting Joseph Smith, he had four left and he sold the remaining uh, mummies and the accompanying papyri and a hypocephalus, a little, an amulet, a plaster amulet that would either go under the head or on the chest of the mummy to remind the deceased of, of how to pass into the eternal worlds, which is also very, very interesting. We'll get to that. Um, when Joseph Smith had acquired them, he announced that they contained some of the writings of the patriarchs, Abraham and Joseph, both of whom had lived in Egypt. Right. Well, let me interject here because this I didn't include this as part of the presentation. So we have the book of Abraham. He said the writings of Joseph were there too. Where's that? We don't have that. Mm. There are three facsimiles in our book of Abraham. The book of Abraham only talks about the first facsimile. The second two have no accompanying text. John Gee, a preeminent um, Egyptologist and Latter-day Saint, has estimated, well, it's believed that Joseph Smith had finished translating both of those books, Abraham and Joseph. But before his death, he was only able to publish in the times and seasons the book of Abraham that we have. It is estimated that between two-thirds and three-fourths, or between 66 and 75% of what he translated is still out there somewhere. And we have no idea where it's at? No. It's probably in your great-grandma's attic. Everybody goes look at your grandma's attic. <laughs> right? Right? Right now, because pause the podcast, go to your grandma's attic, and start rummaging around. Because if they are related to facsimile two and facsimile three, it's talking about astronomy. Yeah. Astronomy of God. Wow. Wow. Anyway, right. so if we look at this map here on the left of your screen, the area in the red is where they were discovered. We'll go into more detail. So this is referred to as the Upper Nile or Upper Egypt. And the ancient Egyptian capital was Thebes. And here's a closer map of that area. On the right hand side of the map, you'll see Karnak, which uh, <laughs> the other one on my list is the Egyptian endowment. There are two ancient Egyptian temples dating to the time period of Moses that predate the more ostentatious Egyptian temples that where the, the pharaohs were building them unto themselves. Right. They're, Two smaller temples, Karnak and Medina Tabu, which are almost identical. Hugh said about these ancient Egyptian temples and their rites, he said, endowed Latter-day Saints require no explanation. So when you go through those temples and the reliefs and what you're instructed to do, room by room, you're washed, you're anointed, you're clothed, and you go room by room and you make progressive covenants. 
Then you pass through the veil in these ancient temples and you go sit down on the throne with God. <laughs> I mean, and there are accompanying pictures of that, that presentation. So in Karnak, and whenever I see Karnak, I think of that. And anyway, across the Nile River from Karnak is Thebes. They don't know exactly where they were discovered because the Italian guy, Antonio Labolo, who was um, in exile from France, well, in exile because of, uh, I think, revolutionary activities, he was working like, this is a crazy thing, history. And, we, and this is probably a good preface to the whole discussion. Nobody alive at the time of Joseph Smith knew anything about ancient Egypt. No. They had no knowledge of how to read hieroglyphic. None. Even the native Egyptians, you know, that walk past these Egyptian ruins and look at the hieroglyphs and think, huh, wonder what that says. Well, yeah, and and it's not too long before or too long before Joseph Smith that Napoleon and his crew roll up on the Rosetta Stone. And everyone thinks, oh, we got this Rosetta Stone, and, and that, that's how they translated it. That was a process. That did not come overnight. So Champollion, who's the Frenchman who cracked the Rosetta Stone, was a contemporary of Joseph Smith. But even his ideas did not get traction until 1850. Exactly. Well after. So when we talked about what Joseph Smith was attempting to do with this Egyptian stuff, and isn't it interesting? So Napoleon, the result of Napoleon's campaigns into Egypt was the rediscovery of all these Egyptian antiquities. Yep. And brought all of this to our attention. But Joseph Smith was at least uh, 10 to 20 years ahead of the curve in getting at what this meant and the true significance in regard to the restoration. Anyway, <clears throat> so on this, uh, <clears throat> West Bank of the Nile discovered, he discovered 11 mummies and those red dots represent where they possibly were. He had over a hundred men working, several hundred men working for him excavating. So he couldn't keep track of exactly where these 11 were discovered. He died, and uh, the mummies were shipped to New York City to sell them to anybody who would pay the appropriate sum. The proceeds were sent to Lavolo's heirs. Chandler acquired, huh? Can I ask a quick question real quick? Sure. And this is going to sound kind of silly, and, and it may be one of those things we just don't have an answer to. Do we know how the mummies were positioned in relation to Karnak? Oh, which direction they were lying and that sort of thing? Yeah. No. For, I don't. I'm not thinking about it. Is they don't even know where they were found. So, I mean, what they were doing in, in Antonio Lobolo's day wasn't archaeology. It was grave. It was looting. Right. Right. They weren't keeping the best notes. They were just trying to smuggle out keeping, the antiquities. Yeah. They weren't keeping any notes. I mean, the whole idea of archaeology wasn't even a study until the 20th century. Yeah. Very people... first, so. So people just grave forget. robbers, what they were doing. Yeah, people forget archaeology as a quote science yeah. has only been around for about a hundred years. Yeah. Right. And I'm always yeah. fascinated when the archaeologists go, Well, this is how it is. And I'm like, Really? That's how it is? Are you sure? I mean, a hundred years, it it it's almost arrogant that the position that we take that 
oh well we know the breadth of human history in the last hundred years so my experience has been that the the scientists the archaeologists and the scholars who are at the leading edge of the science are the ones most open to change because they're the most educated and they know exactly what they don't know right it's the people who are you know two or three rows back you know teaching in the school systems that become these hardened disciples of whatever is currently popular right. even since you and i talked about book of mormon evidences months ago there have been two brand new lidar studies in uh, mesoamerica with the exact same results northern guatemala yep. and another place on the yucatan just the one in northern guatemala they found 140 miles of highways <laughs> connecting like these seven cities that were much more advanced, much earlier than anybody thought the Mayan. Right. And they have, they're revising everything. Yep. Everything. Anyway, and it, it'll take probably a decade for all that information to trickle into the textbooks that, you know, oh, that we're easily. teaching our kids in the schools, right? So easily. Chandler gets these mummies in 1833. He claimed that Labola was his uncle. But that hasn't been confirmed. It might have just been adding to his story. You never know, right? Gotcha. Here's the first and the coolest criticism. So, so real quick, but yeah. before we dive into to the criticism, yeah. let me ask you this. Joseph Smith receives this papyra from the mummies. Yeah. He then goes to work to translate them. Yeah. The Book of Abraham, the Book of Moses from? No, the Book of no. Moses did not come from the Pyrae. Really? And we're, we'll talk about that. The Book of Moses. Oh, I love that book even more than Abraham. Book of Moses was the result of his, the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. Okay. All right. Now, he, now this is significant. He called the Book of Moses a translation. What was he translating? The Bible. Bupkis. He wasn't translating anything. It was straight up revelation that he received while studying the Old Testament. All of that stuff was given to him. Okay, Pure so revelation. Why does, would he why would he call it a translation? Mm. That gives us insight, very significant insight into what he was doing with the Book of Mormon and with the Book of Abraham. It was less, he didn't translate like a scholar would, you know, take one word, translate the word and write it down. That's not, he wasn't a scholarly translator. He did not have those abilities. He wanted to be. They tried to study, he and his counterparts, they studied Egyptian. They studied Hebrew. Right. They wanted to learn Egyptian, which is weird because nobody knew it then. But, um, so when he calls the book of Abraham a translation, and the Book of Mormon, a translation. We know that he had gold plates, but he wasn't translating from the characters on the plates. He was translating from the Urim and Thummim or the gotcha. Seer Stone. Gotcha. Revelation. So, yeah. So, so real quick, what happens to those papyri after Joseph's done with them? <laughs> oh, I love this story. So when they first got them, there were four mummies presumably four scrolls and there were some and of course they are thousands of years old right and so the edges of them have become worn and ragged and in it in an attempt to preserve those ragged edges they cut them off 
and glued them to parchment, mm -hmm. as you can see in this photograph. This is an actual photograph of the Joseph Smith papyri in possession of the church. So you can see where it's worn, and they glued it you know, as best they could in the 1830s right. to this paper to try and preserve it. So what they inadvertently did was divide the collect, divide the whole collection into two. They had the large scrolls that were still intact. They had these trimmings and they had the mummies. After his death, his mother, Lucy Mack, continued to show them to people in order to try and earn a living. Oh. Upon her death, they went to Emma. Upon Emma's death, her second husband, Louis Bitterman, sold them to some guy in St. Louis whose name I forget. And then he subsequently sold them to the Chicago, the I think it's the Woodward Museum in Chicago. Right. But apparently not all of the collection. He kept these trimmed sections that had been glued to parchment and framed. He kept those. And this picture is of one of those. And those are called the Joseph Smith Papyri. The bulk of the collection that he sold to the Woodward Museum, the four mummies, and the bulk of the four scrolls ultimately went up in smoke in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. Right. So, so, and, and, and the reason I think that's important is to, to showcase the idea that people are coming up with, with their criticisms based off of incomplete data. Right. This is a, oh, and, and that's calculated. Right. I mean, that's my, my question to people. They're not telling you everything. Is it because they don't know everything or because they don't want you to know everything? Right. Right. And so here, this is why this is criticism. Number one, this is for people who um, are not prepared or maybe who want to leave. This is the perfect excuse because guess the perfect test of Joseph Smith's claim to being a prophet is this. He claimed to have translated the book of Abraham from these papyri. Lo and behold, in 1967, uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art discovered them, these, these remnants, and gifted them to the church quite kindly. I mean, there was, I don't, there was nothing nefarious about it. And the church didn't hide that fact at all. The church made them available to every for everyone to see, to look at, and to translate, including Hugh Nibley. And here's one thing that in going over this that I had taken for granted this whole time. Prior to the discovery of these, we'll call them the Joseph Smith papyri, we did not have any evidence whatsoever that Joseph Smith ever really possessed any Egyptian artifacts or scrolls. Mm. We had none. Now we do. Right. He really did have, he really did have these. That story, that part of the story is true. And that's very exciting. And the church itself published an article in 1968, as soon as they could, about the discovery of these. Mm. And, okay. So here's the test. Finally, we're going to translate these scrolls that Joseph Smith had, because now we know how to read Egyptian hieroglyph, and we're going to see if he was a prophet or a liar. And what do you think they translated? And they all agreed, Hugh and everybody. Well, it's exactly what you would expect from a, a mummy. They're funeral texts, right. burial texts. The Book of Breathings and the Book of the Dead, the two of them. And there are other examples, not very many. 
of the Book of Breathings, by the way, which were all discovered after this. And in terms of their archaeological dates, they're all later than this. This snippet we have of the Book of Breathings is the oldest one in existence. That's really? pretty cool. Yeah. You know, and, and I think before we jump into the criticisms, I think it's important that we we mention what the Book of the Dead was, right? especially so the book of the dead was a book that was supposed to be like a how-to manual yeah if i understand correctly on how yeah. to navigate the the um the afterworld the after yeah the afterworld right you're going to encounter this and then you're going to do that right yeah. and then you're going to go to here and then you're going to do this yeah. now it th there are some striking parallels to the lds endowment i should say in those in that book but nonetheless, it is somewhat different. So people have glommed on to this idea that that, well, it's not exact, so it can't be correct, right? And I'm sure we'll cover all that. But well, I I was very interested. I've I've read through both, and by the way, the Book of the Dead and the Book of Breathings, they're not like perfectly accurate reprintings of one another. Right. They're all they're all a little bit different because they were all handwritten by the priests, scribes who would take liberties and some scribes are better than others and the handwriting was better than others. So we'll see that it wasn't, we, this is another case of presentism because mm -hmm. of copyright and exactness. We can't steal people's words. We can't misrepresent words. We fight over articles in the King James version or any biblical version for that matter. I mean, we're very precise about the printed material in ancient Egypt. That wasn't necessarily the case. I mean, they were as careful and as cautious as anyone of their time. And as one scholar put it, it's not that the Egyptians were bad at, at uh, keeping things. What they were, their problem was they kept everything. And, right. started, and so their religion just continued to proliferate until um, King Tut's dad, Akhenaten, when he came to power, he decided he was going to return them to monotheism. Right. To, to the sun god and he was hated they hated him yep because the pantheon of gods was big business for the priest cast and for the idol makers you know yep and he was killing their business anyway he i think he was pharaoh for about seven years had seven or eight or nine kids king tut being the next heir and when he died they erased him Yep. In fact, it wasn't until this century that we even knew he existed. And he had, they right. had to restore him, that he was reviled for that. That's crazy. Anyway, yep. very interesting stuff. All right. So I think that answers the question of what it is, where it came from, and what happened to it, right? It's, it's, it's something that comes out of Egypt. Joseph manages to put the money together with all the saints. They... $82,000 at today's money. Right. And, and keep in mind, this is a time when when men and women, especially the sisters, were grinding up their plates for the mortar. Yeah. Interior mortar of the yeah. of the Kirtland Temple to to yeah. make it shine a little bit. Right. Yeah. So these are these are poor and destitute people. Yeah. So I don't know. I, you know, I think I don't think anyone has the, the answers. I'm sure Joseph saw them and recognized their worth. And then had to go raise funds for that. Nonetheless, um, Joseph knew they were important and had to be translated. Well, when you look what came from them, you can't right. argue that. Right. Absolutely. 
priceless. Right. Which is why it's called the pearl of great price. Yep. Yep. Priceless. Joseph dies. The 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 mummies go eventually through Bitumen and whatnot to uh the the Chicago Museum. The the Great Fire, Chicago Fire happens and most everything, except with the exception of a few things, goes up in smoke. Correct. So and and out of this, the book of Abraham details Abraham's time in Egypt as well as other crucial events. So yeah. so let's let's talk about some of the criticisms now. So the biggest one and the one I mentioned to my friend that through him was you know that Joseph failed the test because we now have the papyrus who translated him. And it's not the book of Abraham. I guess Joseph Smith is a failure. What's the rest of the story? Joseph Smith had in his possession three or four or more long scrolls, plus the hyphocephalus, the, the round, the second facsimile, right? Which mm -hmm. is an amulet of plaster. And they found lots of those. Of these original materials, only a handful of the fragments fragments an estimated 10% were recovered at the Metropolitan Museum. So those frayed edges that were trimmed off, mounted and put in, put in frames is all that was left. Okay. And there are, there's a wonderful graphic I want that's it's quite informative. The majority of the papyri remains lost and it has likely been destroyed. Critics who claim that all or a majority of the papyri possessed by Joseph Smith are mistaken. Mm -hmm. As expected, the mummies were buried with common funerary texts. But as archaeologist John Gee points out, Egyptian priests of the time were often buried with a variety of different texts, all written on the same papyrus roll, one after the other. We call that today cutting and pasting. Right. They would do that. They would cut and paste those vignettes, what we call facsimiles now. So here's, this is the most interesting graphic I've seen on it. <clears throat> it represents the four scrolls that he had in his possession. We know their names. The scroll of Hor, it was 13 centimeters wide and about 10 feet in length. Ooh. And those scraps, so those brown colored pieces, those are what we have. That's the Joseph Smith papyri. One, two, three. And that facsimile, the facsimile number one. That's so we it. have a very small sample size. 10% is the estimate. 10%. So if you were just placing bets in Vegas, 90% that this is not what he translated from. <laughs> right. We'll talk more about that. But the other three, the top, the scroll of horror was where we get the first facsimile <clears throat> we don't even know if the whole scroll was the book of breathings or if it was something else <clears throat> the scroll of seminis 32 centimeters wide much wider early accounts indicate that this scroll may have been extended twice as long as shown here it could have been 20 feet long wow then the third scroll Nufyanub, again, very wide, 10 feet long. And the last one we have nothing of. So, and, we have, and we have the hypocephalus. 
so let me ask you this, Ken. The Scroll of Horror, the Scroll of Seminus. Uh, I won't even pretend to pronounce the third or the That's fourth. That's a tough one. one. But but have have those been found with any other mummies? Well, no, because the names of these scrolls are the names of the mummies that they belong to. They okay. were mentioned by them, right? Okay. So they're unique to that mummy. Now, inevitably, okay. they were cutting and pasting from something else. Right. As we will see, but we, we have no idea of really knowing exactly what those were. I got Their ideas. But this, this graphic is probably the most insightful thing I've seen in regard to this issue. Absolutely. And, and this It's showing the big lie that critics want you to hoodwink you with that, oh, we have all of his, we have all of his papyri and he just, he really fouled up and he's just making it up. We don't know that. Right. <clears throat> John Gee, eyewitness accounts from Joseph Smith's day agree that the Book of Mormon, uh, the Book of Abraham was on the long roll. People who saw it, so yeah, he was working on the long one. Mm. maybe the second one the 20 foot long one uh, through museum documents we can corroborate that the long roll was sold to the chicago museum unfortunately it was destroyed by fire in 1871 the small portion on the outside of the roll seems to have been cut off and mounted for its protection it is always the outermost edge of a scroll that is damaged the most and joseph must have felt that this damaged beast needed preservation efforts because this part of the scroll was glued to paper that dates back to the Kirtland period. They know where that paper came from. So it was done very early on. Gotcha. John Gee again. According to a newfound Mormon, non-Mormon eyewitness account, the Book of Abraham seems to have been on a very long and completely intact roll. So it probably could have been the fourth one. <clears throat> and therefore not even on the same scroll as the fragments we have. Let me pause here. Uh, the reason critics like to presume that Joseph Smith was translating from these fragments is because that first fragment contains facsimile number one. <laughs> and so they go, oh, see, so that was the one. Well, if that's true, where are the other two facsimiles? Right. You know? But right. We'll, we'll talk more about that. They were cutting and pasting text. They were also cutting and pasting pictures. And there is significant precedent of them moving the vignettes, the, the, the drawings around having nothing to do with the adjacent text. It was like decoration. Gotcha. Some extent. And this in turn means that none of the fragments of the Joseph Smith papyri that we have is from the same scroll as the book of Abraham. And if none of the fragments that we have comes from the same scroll as the book of Abraham, then the fact that none of the text on the matches the book of Abraham is not a problem. Critics of the church have presumed that the book of Abraham must be on the fragments that we currently have. Why they assume that is beyond me. Historical evidence is against such a conclusion. <laughs> and he goes on, there is still more evidence that Joseph Smith had additional papyri. Egyptian papyrus documents almost universally pertain to only one individual, one document per individual. So from an Egyptological perspective, how many papyri do we know that Joseph Smith had? We know that there was a Book of Breathings belonging to Hor, Book of the Dead belonging to Tarashitmin, Book of the Dead belonging to Neferenub, Hypocelephus belonging to Sheshank, and a document belonging to Amenhotep, the son of Hor. 
Here we have documents from at least five different individuals. If we have all the papyri Joseph Smith had, where, we might ask, are facsimiles two and three? The roll belonging to Amenhotep or all the strange vignettes which those who saw the papyri Nabu describe? If there are documents we do not have, by what clairvoyance do critics proclaim what was or was not on them? They don't. Right. That's, it's a biased presumption. Which brings us to this topic we talked about earlier. Joseph referred, also referred to the Book of Moses as a translation. Knowing full well, he didn't translate it in the sense of transcribing it from an original document. The only eyewitness to the translation process to describe it was Joseph Smith's scribe, Warren Parrish, who claimed after he left the church, famously, I have sat by his, Joseph's side, and penned down the translation of the Egyptian hieroglyphics as he claimed to receive it by direct inspiration from heaven. Hmm. Now, if that is true, none of the scrolls had to have the Book of Abraham on them, technically. So then the question is, well, how do we know? I mean, let's assume for the sake of discussion that none of the scrolls had it. He was just receiving revelation like he did for the Book of Moses. How do we evaluate then whether the book of Abraham is a valuable or truthful text at all? Okay, so can I play devil's advocate that to that then real quick? You better, sure. So let's say someone says the following. Well, if it's not a direct translation, right, then what were the purposes of the mummies and the papyri to begin with? That's the same question that's been asked about the Book of Mormon. And I, my answer is twofold. Number one, the Book of Mormon, the plates of brass, the, the, the golden appearing plates were evidence that it was, there really was a physical record, which was critical when it comes to the eight witnesses, the 11 witnesses of the others who saw them. There really was a record. Did Joseph Smith have even begin to have the ability to translate any of that? No, not as a scholar or as a person. Now, in terms of the, it, and the other reason was as a catalyst, Joseph Smith never received revelation without first asking a question. So he receives, I mean, section 132, celestial marriage was given because he said, what's, What's this whole thing about Abraham having more than one wife? And God says, let me tell you about eternal marriage. Boom! And just opens the floodgates. Right. So, so here he is with these mummies, which came from Egypt, and he knows that Abraham went down to Egypt. Was that just a catalyst for him to start asking the questions to which the book of Abraham was an answer? Nobody knows the answer to that question. I'm inclined, because of what we're going to discuss in a minute, to believe that he really did have Abrahamic documents amongst those scrolls okay. because, because of evidence we have found to demonstrate that the ancient Egyptians were very well aware of who Abraham was. Right. And that ancient Egyptian and ancient extra canonical texts agree exactly with what Joseph Smith gave us in our book of Abraham. When the rest of right. the world had no clue. Yeah. So that's exciting stuff. Well, and the proof of this would really be in 
later when we get down to the home run section of things, right? Yeah. Is that, you know, regardless of, of what somebody favors from a historical standpoint of how Joseph Smith translated these documents, um, the proof should be found within the correlations between Egyptian religious rights and Mormon religious rights. Right. Proof is in the pudding, ultimately. Yep. I mean, let's let's just assume he he got it out of thin air, like he did the Book of Moses. What he gave us, how did he how did he get those bullseyes? Not just the text, but his interpretation of the facsimiles, which no right. one knew, which is even trickier because most of the facsimile, well, all of the interpretations of the facsimiles, he wasn't interpreting hieroglyphics; he was interpreting um, ideograms, right. representative images, and the significance of them, which don't always. They're not as concrete as hieroglyphics. All right, criticism number two. What most people don't know is that the original Joseph Smith papyri, the trimmed edges were damaged. And one of those damaged pieces was the first facsimile, the first ideogram. So when the image you're looking at, the image on the left, is the actual papyri. You can see that the head of the priest and the hand of the priest are missing. Right. Yet in our facsimile, they're not. So why so, is that? Well, when they when they printed the um, the Book of Abraham, the person uh, what was his name Head Headlock Hedrick. Well, it's I'll, I have it in print later. They filled in the blanks just so it would look nice, so it would look like a ripped up uh, papyrus. I got gotcha. you. Now, we do not know how much part Joseph Smith had to do with that or how much the printer Hedrick, I think was his name, had to do with it. But there, therein lies some criticism that, you know, Joseph Smith was so dumb, he didn't even know what these meant or how to fill them in, and therefore, he's not a prophet. So we're going to talk about why that, or, you know, what all that is. <clears throat> uh, one of the uh, criticisms is... The priest's head was not a bald-headed priest. It was the head of a jackal, a mask that they wore. Hmm. Because there are other images, and we're going to see a very interesting one, where he is wearing a mask of a jackal. Okay? Okay. And that it was an embalming scene, and that this wasn't a, it was, wasn't a sacrificial knife and that sort of thing. John Gigan, assume for the sake of argument that the head on facsimile one figure is correct. What are the implications of the figure being a bald man? Shaving was a common feature of initiation into the priesthood from the old kingdom through the Roman period. Since complete shaving of the head was another mark of the male Isaac votary and priest, the bald figure would then be a priest. So there is historical precedent mm. for having a bald priest. How would Joseph Smith know that? Right. Assume, on the other hand, that the head on facsimile one figure three is that of a jackal. We have representations of priests wearing masks. One example of an actual mask, literary accounts from non-Egyptians about Egyptian priests wearing masks. Thus, however, the restoration is made. The individual shown in facsimile one figure three is a priest, whether he's a baldy or jackal. And the entire question of which head should be on the figure is moot. So far as identifying the figure identifying the figure is concerned the entire debate has been a waste of ink 
there are actually images, and I forgot to include one here, putting this together, showing this bald-headed priest, a cutaway showing on, on the jackal mask. So whether they wore the mask or not, they were priests. <clears throat> then we get to the knife. <clears throat> First, there is the question as to whether the knife being held by three could plausibly have been in the original vin vignette or illustration. This is very interesting. The existence of the knife has been doubted by many because it does not conform to what other Egyptian papyri would lead us to expect. And so some Egyptologists have denied the possibility that the knife was original to this illustration. At least two different 19th century eyewitnesses to this scroll who examined the papyri, including one who was not a Latter-day Saint, reported seeing, quote, a priest with a knife in his hand or a man standing by him with a drawn knife. So apparently when Joseph Smith had them, that part of the scroll was still intact. Okay. Showing the knife. The significance of this is that the presence of a knife in the original papyrus has here been described by a non-Mormon witness, eyewitnesses whose description of the storage and preservation of papyri matches that of independent contemporary accounts. Okay. Um, it also matches the description another eyewitness made before Reuben Headlock. Reuben Headlock was the one who cut those. Those facsimiles had to be carved into wood to be printed. The fact that they're accurate at all is miraculous. Yeah, yeah. This gives us two independent eyewitnesses to the presence of a knife on facsimile one, regardless of what we might otherwise think. So here's the image of the knife. Furthermore, the crescent shape of this knife is consistent with the shape of ancient Egyptian flint knives, which were used from prehistoric times to the Middle Kingdom. Okay. Among other activities, ritual slaughter and execration rites. This reinforces the likelihood that the knife was original to the scene. So here's that knife in an actual Egyptian representation. Okay. There's the, the actual flint knife up there you can see how it was chipped away to sharpen right. the blade wow just like ancient mesoamericans that's crazy <laughs> criticism number three this is the dumbest one critics of joseph smith have ridiculed the claim that the book of abraham was purportedly written by his own hand upon papyrus which is what it says in the introduction the criticism has been repeated in many parts of the internet and beyond usually runs something like this. One, Joseph Smith claimed the book of Abraham was written by his own hand upon papyrus, meaning Abraham himself had wrote the text Joseph Smith translated. Two, the surviving papyri fragments date to around 200-150 BC. Abraham, by contrast, is usually dated to having lived around 2000 BC. Therefore, Joseph Smith claims that the book of Abraham is written by his own hand upon papyrus is false. Therefore, the book of Abraham is not authentic, Therefore, Joseph Smith was a false prophet. That that is a dumb argument because look, I'm just gonna say it like this: if you pick up a copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin, right, right, yeah. that book was written by I think it's Harriet Beecher Stowe. I, I could be wrong. I'm I'm blanking on the name real quick of the author, but that book was written. Um. 100 you know 100 years ago plus right okay. you pick up a copy today you don't say 
well, this isn't really Uncle Tom's cabin, right? This, this isn't really the book. And so we know the Egyptians were master record keepers, right? If you yeah. listen to some of the reports from the, you know, before it was burnt down, the, the, the library at Alexandria. Yeah. Right. They were, they were. Prolific, they had everything. Yeah. Right. So just because it's a copy doesn't mean that it's inauthentic. I think right? of the New Testament, you know, my right. copy of the New Testament, Paul talks about himself first person. Oh, he must have written my copy. Of course, that's stupid. Right. But that's that's that argument. Um, the, there are two preeminent Egyptologists today John, who are LDS who have written extensively about all of this stuff. John Gee and the others, Kerry Mills. I think he's called, I think he pronounced his name Mulstein. Okay. You know, the German name says Mulstein, but in any case, he answers it this way. By the way, People have wondered why more Egyptologists have not weighed in on this topic. Can you imagine what a hot potato this topic is? Oh, yeah. Can, can you imagine cancel culture going against anybody who would dare weigh in on this? Well, and, and let's just say that you... Especially can, in favor of the of this Latter-day Saints? I, w I was going to say, look, I've seen enough from, from archaeology that you got to kind of look at archaeology with a little bit of stink eye from time to time, right? You know, mm -hmm. with a raised eyebrow. Yeah. Because they're, they're, let's just take Clovis, the Clovis first model as an example, right? They have said for years and years, the first people to ever be on the continent were, were the Clovis people, right? They find these sh same shaped um, spearheads on the Delmarva Peninsula as they do out in Clovis, New Mexico. And they're like, oh, this must have been the first people until a roadway project and they find out, oh, there was someone else here. <laughs> and they still they still fought against. That happens almost every day. They, they still fought against the new narrative, right? That This new discovery. So pre, I have to say prehistory is the most interesting puzzle yeah. I know yeah, well, and so, that and cosmology. So, yeah, and so when you start looking at this, I think because if you you do bring up a different um, a different paradigm than what's accepted, there is a certain amount of exclusion you get or ridicule for bringing that up. It's not oh, yeah. an open science like we'd hoped. Uh, yeah. There, there is a network there. So if you're an art, if you're an Egyptologist and you're doing this work and you're like. You know, this sounds awfully close to what the Mormons think, right? You can bet you're going to have your credentials looked at very seriously. Even if you're LDS, which yes. is my point. The fact that Carrie and John are willing to risk their professional reputations to say anything about this, even though they're LDS, they don't make their living doing this stuff. They don't make any money no. from these books. They're doing it as a service to people like me. Well, and yeah, I, they, I, I, and, and they're castigated by Mormons and non-Mormons alike who fall on both sides of the issue. You know, and, and here's the thing. So that it takes a certain amount of courage for them to speak out at all. Well, you, you mentioned they're not making a ton of money off those books. Let's be honest. No money. With the exception of you, me, and probably 12 other people, there's nobody else getting, getting excited yeah. about egyptology from a mormon point of view right yeah, yeah. you nibbly definitely john gee 
couple other scholars and it, it's not like it's a a hotbed of activity for literature true true but i am so grateful for them and for oh, their perspective yeah. i just uh i wish i could tell them both thank you for sticking your neck out and explaining some of this stuff you know yep anyway uh he says who said this particular papyrus is written by abraham himself <laughs> the heading does not indicate that Abraham had written the particular copy, but he was he was the author of the original. And he goes on. Um, he concludes, when the heading states that the text is written by Abraham's own hand, it notes who the author is, not who copied down the particular manuscript that came into Joseph's right. possession. Anyway, but you know how many people get thrown by that? Too many. Yeah. Too many. Now we get to the Kirtland Egyptian papers. There were uh, a collection of documents that were discovered dealing with Egyptian and an attempt to uh, translate Egyptian characters that had been taken from those papyri. Uh, and so people think, aha, this is evidence that Joseph Smith was not by revelation, but physically working out how to translate and of course, it's wrong. You look at the KEP, this is what it's called for short, and, and each Egyptian each Egyptian glyph has like multiple sentences of meaning to it. Right. Right. And it, that's not, so the, the Kirtland Egyptian papers were produced, and this is significant, after the Book of Abraham was dictated. That's significant. Two. A bit. Yeah. It just um, some source material used in the KEP is taken from sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. Some of the Kirtland Egyptian papers do not contain any Egyptian at all. There are some really deep concepts. And we talk about someday about cosmology in the restored gospel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The KEP says some really amazing stuff about that. I mean, just snippets, but amazing. For the placement of a translation of the Book of Abraham prior to the, to the production of the KEP renders the entire discussion regarding which document came before or which other documents irrelevant. <laughs> Richard Bushman, author of Rough Stone Rolling, he said, while working on the Book of Mormon in 1829, Joseph invited Oliver Cowdery to try to translate. We all know how that went. He tried and failed. Now with the Egyptian papyri before them, Joseph again, let the men with the greatest interest uh, within such undertakings, Cowdery and W.W. W. Phelps, Warren Parrish, and Frederick Williams, attempt translations of the texts. Why would he do that? I can think of a couple of reasons, so that they wouldn't take for granted what he was doing, and to try and encourage them to become, to prepare to, when he, ultimately when he was gone, to do some of the things that he, that they would need to do. You know, we, we forget that Joseph had said on more than one occasion, oh, if all men could be prophets, yeah. right? This the, Joseph was not a guy who was threatened by somebody else's spiritual experiences, oh. right? It was a, very clear. He was very clear about the order of priesthood. Right. There's only one man at a time who receives revelation. That's, that's what the order of the priesthood means. My house is a house of order. But he was trying to create a kingdom of prophets. Right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, these guys 
seemed to have copied lines of Egyptian from the papyrus and worked out stories to go with the text. Or they wrote down an Egyptian character and attempted various renditions. One can imagine these men staring at the characters, <laughs> jotting down ideas that occurred to them, hoping for a burning confirmation. They tried one approach after another. Eventually, they pulled their work together into a collection that uh, they called Grammar and Alphabet of the Egyptian Language. And it was written in the handwriting of W.W. W. Phelps and Warren Parrish, not Joseph Smith's. So mm -hmm. that theory goes by the wayside. That criticism is dead. Oh! Criticism number five. Biblical Abraham had nothing to do with ancient Egypt. Now this image that we're looking at has to be one of my favorite images in regard to this ever. This is another papyrus. This is not the Joseph Smith papyrus. It's called the Leiden papyrus in the Netherlands. It dates to the third century. It's written in Greek. Notice what the what the vignette is. Another lion couch. Right. Another person lying on the couch. You can see the priest standing over him with a jackal mask. And what is that? A knife in his hand. And you can see the person lying down with his hands up in the air, like in the Joseph the Papyrus, right. like in our facsimile one. You know what the biggest difference is between these images? At the bottom of that image, you see that outlined in red? Yeah. That's Greek for Abraham. Really? You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> That's awesome. So <laughs> we'll just file that one away as we go through. We're going to talk about it again. Anyway, the outline marks Abraham's name. Now, this, this papyrus is from the third century. It's like uh, four to five centuries after the Joseph Smith papyri. Uh. There are dozens, and uh, this is John Gee again. This is published in the Enzyme in 1992. There are dozens of references to Abraham in Egyptian texts. Here we mentioned six of them, and I'll, we won't go through those tonight. And those uh, mentions date to the third century AD, the same time as his papyrus. And most of them came from Thebes, the same place Joseph's, where the Joseph Smith papyri came from. So the whole talk, you know, ancient, ancient Egypt didn't even know who Abraham was. That's crap. Yeah. They knew exactly who he was. I won't mention the name of an anti-Mormon amateur Egyptologist who criticized this study. He said they weren't talking about biblical Abraham. The Egyptians had incantations, magic words. Right. When we say abracadabra, that's an ancient Egyptian uh, magic word. Abracadabra. Right. And so he said, yeah, the Abraham, that was just a magic word. And we talked about this in your city on my couch. John Gee responded to that criticism with a very sarcastically titled article saying, Abracadabra, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <laughs> right. Meaning, clearly they had context, because they mentioned Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob together. Yeah. There's no magic word. No. I mean, they may have been using it as an incantation, but they knew who it was, because there was context. Or at least early on they did, right? We don't know what, what preceding generations, but... Just like we have sayings in our 
in our vernacular that we don't often think about uh, where they came from, right? That's true. That's true. But this Leiden papyrus, I mean, what a gift. It's the Joseph Smith papyri with labels. It's amazing. Uh, Criticism number six, the lion couch that Abraham was lying on, was never used for sacrifice. It was just for embalming. Large alabaster tables found in Memphis, Egypt, with the lion design carved in relief on their sides, were rarely used for embalming. These, the research of this guy in 1948, Mustafa, I wish my name was Mustafa, concerning the Apis bull at Memphis revealed that these tables were used daily to wash the living Apis, the sacrificial bull, and also to perform sacrifice. Hmm. Amir described an offering table with lions carved on its sides, located near an inscription of dedication to the living bull Apis. And here are the photographs of those alabaster tables. You see the lion couch Mm -hmm. relief? Yeah. And there's the base of it down here where the blood would drain into into a bowl. And here it is from the top. You see how the catch basin would catch the blood. It would drain down to the bottom. Right. And also. Yeah, don't tell me the lion couch was never used for sacrifice. And there's textual evidence for that also. Just like all sciences, as time progresses, the earlier assumptions are being disproven. And almost and always in the favor of Joseph Smith, which is the part that boggles my mind. Criticism number seven. The book of Abraham is not on the Joseph Smith papyri containing facsimile one. There again, they're saying because the Joseph Papyri has facsimile one on it, where's the book of Abraham? It should be there. Egyptologist Carrie Milstein again. The immediate assumption was that the text adjacent to facsimile one must have been the text from which Joseph Smith translated the book of Abraham. I can understand why they would think that. While at first glance it seems reasonable uh, to assume that the text adjoining facsimile one would be the place to look for the source of the book of Abraham, There are many reasons to discard that assumption. Number one, dissonance or differences between the text and the adjacent picture is even more pronounced with ancient papyri. It is common to find the picture some distance from the text. Such incongruity was especially endemic to the Ptolemaic era, which happens to be the time period during which the Joseph Smith papyri were created and to the type of text we find next to facsimile one. In this case, the Joseph Smith papyri turns out to be exactly like most papyri of its mm. day. So most of them were incongruent. They were disconnected. Right. Number two, furthermore, during the time period which Joseph Smith papyri were created, it was common not only for the text and its accompanying picture to be separated from each other, but also for the wrong vignette to be associated with the text. Or for vignettes and text to be completely misaligned on a long scroll. The content of a vignette and the content of the text frequently lack any apparent connection. This is particularly common in books of breathing, the type of text which is adjacent to facsimile one on the Joseph Smith papyri. So I imagine there are these priests and they might be low because they weren't doing this stuff for the pharaoh, the lower level priests and scribes, maybe not even understanding what they're, it was just decoration. 
yeah, this will look nice on the scroll here. You know, it's a possibility. Number three, there is no known case of any vignette remotely like facsimile one that is associated with the type of text that it is adjacent to. So the presumption, there is no evidence for at all. No other copies of the Book of Breathings contain anything similar. Based on ancient parallels to the Book of Breathings, the most likely conclusion is that the picture next to the text was not associated with the text at all. So the evidence is precisely opposite of the presumption. Gotcha. Ah! Now we're to the really fun stuff. Criticism number eight. Joseph Smith's interpretations of the facsimiles are all wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong. And that's usually where the critics stop. They don't go into any detail. Why? Well, because if they, they go have... into detail, they're going to find they're going to expose the the fallacy yeah. that they're putting out there. Or they don't have any detail. It's right. just too easy to believe. And I understand. If I didn't know what I know, I believe that too. Oh, he's a crackpot. He's a crank just making this stuff up. Which is, leads right into the home run section. The home runs come in three categories, in my view. That the critics will not ever tell you because they don't know or they don't want you to know. Joseph Smith's bullseyes regarding the interpretation of specific elements of the facsimiles. You're Joseph Smith. You have practically no education. Nobody knows anything about Egyptian. And you're taking a stab at ideograms, not even hieroglyphics. You shouldn't even be in the ballpark. Right. Do you? I remember as a, a young age, flipping through my copy of the scriptures, which I hadn't even done, and seeing those facsimiles for the first time, being bored in sacrament meeting, I'm going, ooh, what can this mean? I'm going to try and figure it out myself, you know, and try and take guesses at it. I understand where the early viewers, you know, W.W. Well, Phelps and Warren Parrish were coming from. Well, what is this? And my guesses are stupid relative to what that really is about. Joseph Smith's weren't. Anyway, second category, the utter vindication of the notion that Abraham was ever on a lying couch in Egypt by the discovery of authentic papyri vignettes labeled with Abraham's name, we saw it. And right. three, the numerous unmistakable parallels between our book of Abraham and extra canonical texts that were unknown to Joseph Smith, which are fully documented in my book. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Oh boy. Facsimile number one. So I give you the full facsimile on the right. Okay. And then the uh, the particular image that we're talking about. So facsimile one, figure one, is this bird, which Joseph Smith says is the angel of the Lord. Who would say that? A bird? So here's now the uh, the interpretation through an Egyptological lens. Okay. It is not a baw bird as it might have been in the original vignette, but is a hawk. Any falconoid bird, the sign of a powerful divine or celestial being. Mm. Did Joseph Smith know that? In Egyptian mythology, it is Horus, the hawk, who delivers his father Osiris from death. Divine being? Okay, now when we play this game, you get to be Simon Cowell. 
So we're going to read we're going to read Joseph Smith's interpretation. Then we're going to read the Egyptological interpretation, and you get to go ding 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 if it matches or if it doesn't. You ready? Okay. Yep. So here's the first one. Ding ding or burr. You're bad. You're horrible at this. I know. I know. I'm. I'm trying to to think. Angel of the Lord, a powerful divine or celestial being. That's I couldn't. That's not same at all. Yeah. So and and here's the thing. I'm trying to see it from the other side, right? Yeah. I'm a big believer in trying to to understand where they're coming from, because I I want to assume the best that nobody's out to dupe somebody intentionally, right? And but but when you get down to these these facsimiles these hieroglyphs you have to look at like another language right mm -hmm. so just as we have a word for angel in our vernacular yeah so does so does german so does french whatever but we know they're describing the same thing and yeah. I think with these vignettes here, especially, you know, when we start looking at it and you start seeing what Joseph said and what, you know, current Egyptologists have said. And when they 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 match up, you have to put some level of of um, at least coincidence. I, I shouldn't even say at least coincidence. You have to look at it in terms of, OK, he hit that. Right. He he absolutely 100 percent hit that. And that's right. not coming just from Joseph Smith. Now it's coming from Egyptologists. So that's absolutely a hit. And I will remind us of this fact. Joseph Smith had no business even being close. No, he had no business even being close. And here he is. And this is not the best one. Well, and, and let's let's stop here for a second, right? We also know that from the account of Jesus's baptism, that the Holy Ghost was represented by not a hawk, but a dove, dove. Yeah. a bird, right? So it's not the first time an airborne creature was used to describe a divine being. Very, very good. Very good. Can't get enough of the Mormon Renegade podcast? Well, good news. We're on Patreon, and there's three packages that you can choose from. The first one, the Slightly Rowdy Package, allows you to hear the podcast without all those pesky commercials getting in the way. For those who want a slightly more in-depth experience, there's the Stirring It Up Package, where you can hear ad-free audio, ad-free video, and transcripts. Finally, for those who want to go full Renegade, that package is available too, where you can get everything in the previous two packages, plus an extra show where myself and Ben Winfield break down the news of the day from a very Mormon point of view. You will also get exclusive access to Renegade Chat, and on there you'll be able to talk to others about the show or whatever topics are on your mind. Go to Patreon today and get your exclusive content. Very, very good. Very good. Facsimile 1 Figure 2. Abraham fastened upon an altar. Everybody says that's a joke. Well, we've already seen why it's not a joke. Because we have an, a nearly identical, authentic papyrus that names the person on the altar. Right. As being Abraham. Right. Yeah, going back to that Greek, that one that was that had the, the Greek, Greek uh, script at the bottom yeah. that said Abraham. That one. 
No, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Go back to that last one because I think there's something here we need to point out. And that is the bald head. Yeah. Okay. Now, if what was Abraham on a quest for? He was on a quest for priesthood, right? He wanted the blessings of the father. Yes. So that in turn would make him a priest. If this was fashioned by an Egyptian, which lends itself that it was fashioned by an Egyptian, yep. right? A bald head would denote Abraham had some sort of priesthood um, lineage or priesthood standing. Oh, he is bald head. Very interesting indeed. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. Now, here's something else pointed out about this picture. The position of Abraham's hands mm. is, not, is not incidental. Abraham said, Behold, I lifted up my voice to the Lord God. The sign illustrating Abraham's supplication to God is not only compatible with the message of the text, the upraised hands, but it is an authentic hieroglyphic sign properly used by a man who is accused of not knowing anything about Egyptian signs. Oh. Oh. So do I, do I get the bell or the buzzer? You get the bell on that Ding. one. You're no fun at all. Uh, the altar for sacrifice. And we talked about this already in defense of this idea. Right. Experts have been unwilling to acknowledge that this item could be anything but an embalming table. Certainly it can represent an embalming table, sure. But as a symbol, it is not restricted to that interpretation. I mean, even the beds that they slept on were lying couches. So they were used right. for all kinds of things. And then we have the large alabaster tables that we looked at already. Photos of them again. Yep. Go back to that. I got a question I want to ask you about that vignette. And no one's been able to answer this for me. Abraham appears, appears to be wearing something. If you look at his below the knee, he doesn't have the 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 diagonal hatching that he has on his body. Have you been able to dig up anything on what that could be? I have failed. I have no idea. None at all. I've never I haven't read anything regarding his apparel. I have read. You see the apparel that the priest is wearing? Yeah. That's a leopard skin. Okay. Which is what they really wore. Because here's, here's the other thing. If it's if this is embalming, why would they have clothes on a corpse? That's a good point. But here's the other thing. It might also have to do with just reproduction of these wood cuts. Gotcha. Let's gotcha. go back. I want to go back to the original... All right. Yeah, they're lines on the papyri itself. It's yeah. not it's not just an artifact of the woodcut. No. Yeah, very good. It just struck me as odd, right? All right. Well, next time I'm, I'm, next I'm time you visit, I expect an answer. Yeah. <laughs> well, can I come to you for the answer? <laughs> well, it's in my head now. I, I mean... just talk smack with a microphone. That's what I do. <laughs> I get people way smarter than me on to talk about this stuff. Well, it, it's a gift, brother. It's a gift. All right. Now, let's see. Couch. Yeah. Now we get to these 
figures beneath the lion couch. Joseph Smith says, the idolatrous God of Elkanah, idolatrous God of Libna, idolatrous God of Machmerah, and the idolatrous God of Korash. Where in the heck is he pulling these names out of? They represent four canopic jars, correctly identified by Joseph Smith as representing gods. Now, very often in an embalming ceremony, they were jars and then put the viscera the guts of the embalmed into these jars. But there were also numerous examples of them. It's not being jars at all, being solid figurines like that. Right. Go back to that picture one more time, Ken. So I'm also noticing, just looking here, there seemed to be some sort of writing on three of the four of those. It looks like a half N on two of them. Yeah. And then like an or or a half A, I should say. It's got like the, the almost like the alpha sign. Yeah, yeah. And then or like a compass. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. And then like an N almost on the other. Any ideas? Have you been able to come up? Well, the, the compass and the square figure prominently in Egyptian culture. Okay. As sim as symbols of power and authority. And so, uh yeah. Okay, so so yeah, no, that, I'm just shooting from the hip on that, but yeah, you're ahead of me again, so I I don't know for sure. That's a good question. And a then, very good question. Did Joseph hit those names correctly, Elkanah? Here we go. Here we go. Um, he correctly identified them as representing gods. How would he have known that? You know, he would have said those are just uh, animal statues, right? Nibley identified the names of these gods collectively called the sons of Horus as gods, identified with the four lands adjacent to Egypt. These same gods are represented in the second facsimile, the hypocephalus, where okay. Joseph again hits a nail on the head. They're the same, only in a different context. So Elkanah, so they're identified with the four lands that border Egypt, representing the cardinal directions. Elkanah is Canaan on the west, Libnah, Libya on the north, Mamakara, Anatolia on the south, uh, on the north, I'm sorry, I'm all, on the east, Canaan, on the west, Libya, on the north, Anatolia, and on the south, Korash, or Kush. The east, west, north, and south orientation of these lands is consistent with the tradition that these sons of Horus were guardians of the pillars which formed the four cardinal points. I'm sure it's just a coincidence. That's a bell. That's a bell ringer for sure. Ding, ding, I'm ding, sure ding. it's just a coincidence, Ken. <laughs> You're not playing my game right. I'm sorry. Just, I'm sorry. No it is a hit. It is a hit. Now just say ding ding once. Let me hear what that sounds like. Ding ding. No, you don't do that anymore. Don't do that anymore. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I was trying to save you from that, but you insisted. <laughs> so here they have. In the exact same order, these were not placed there by some Mormon. This is what you see from the British Museum. Mm -hmm. These four gods. Now, I think we have an answer to your question about those marks. Mm -hmm. Those aren't marks that look like a sash. Right. Perhaps. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. <laughs> now, here's one of my favorite ones. Look at figure nine. 
which Joseph Smith says is the idolatrous god of Pharaoh. That creature right there. It looks like an alligator or a crocodile. I would have said a mole because it's under the ground or something. I didn't doesn't I didn't see alligator crocodile, right? I'm just looking at the tip of the tail down there and it's got Yeah, yeah. Oh, there eyes. you go. I so could Joseph, I could be wrong. But who in the right mind would say, Oh, that's that's the god of Pharaoh. Right. We know who that is. Uh, Egyptian history historians now know it's Sebek, or more contemporary, they call it Sobek, the crocodile, appropriately identified by Joseph Smith as the idolatrous god of Pharaoh. According to Theban tradition, the capital of ancient Egypt, the Pharaoh's claim upon the throne was based upon his relationship with the crocodile god Sebek, or <laughs> Sobek, the crocodile god who helped Horus take his seat upon the throne of his father Osiris. Obviously, then, there is fitting reason to call Sebek the god of Pharaoh. Gotcha. That's a that's a big hit. Ding, 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 ding. How many, how many are we going to give Joseph Smith before we say, all right, okay, okay. He somehow knew this. Yeah. How many? Well, I think we're at that limit. What are we? I can't see where. No. I think we're four out of four. Yeah. <clears throat> now, down here at the very bottom, these pillars still looking why are pillars under the ground i would never say that i would i would just i would think that wasn't just an artifact of decoration right but the fact is that's commonly understood so common no one has ever challenged chose a misinterpretation of this before anything new anybody knew anything about egyptology these pillars are appropriately placed under the heavens Oh, so Sobek, idolatrous god of Pharaoh, is in the heavens. Uh, what are the heavens doing underneath the cow? Oh, that's just what the Egyptians do. How would Joseph Smith know that? Right. That guy had such an instinct guesser. It was amazing. Pretty good anyway, guesser. The pillars there, even though the heavens portrayed appear beneath the earth, but he nailed it straight up. That's still not my favorite one, though. Uh, so the author of this book, from which I'm getting, that was print, uh, printed in 1987. It was really quite amazing. He concludes, there is nothing, no thing in the interpretation of facsimile one or in the text of the first chapter of Abraham that is not appropriately represented by the Egyptian symbols in this vignette. One must also add that during the months of March and May of 1842, Joseph Smith published all the material that now constitutes the book of Abraham in the times and seasons. That's how, that's where we got it. Mm -hmm. Symbols that were damaged and replaced by Joseph Smith or by his inspiration, he was capable of making accurate and reasonable judgments concerning the meaning or form of the hieroglyphic signs. It is difficult to believe that this outcome could be achieved by anyone except a prophet of God. Look, the, if you just start taking statistics right let's look at the science of statistical probability the fact that joseph smith is going to hit that right and and look it's not like he's hitting it in the day that this information is known he's hitting <laughs> this long before egypt egyptology was really a thing yeah right yeah and the other cool thing about it i mean abraham has reference to the restored gospel but the other aspects of it like the four gods of the cardinal directions 
That doesn't have anything to do, or Sobek. That doesn't have anything to do with the restored gospel. Right. He was just showing off. Yep. That's not necessary knowledge. He was just, oh, we may as well do this one for give him a freebie, you know? Right. That's crazy. I love this. I love this. <clears throat> We're going to start. By the way, when you look at this hypocephalus, which is Greek for under hypocephalus, the head. Okay. This amulet, which is gone. You don't know where it is. It's ashes, I suppose. On this hypocephalus, you will see vignettes or ideograms. And then you will see actual hieroglyphics. Okay. The fact that we can read the hieroglyphics at all is a miracle. Because the original scribe, who knows what his penmanship was like. And then, uh, what was his name? Hedrick? Hedlock? <laughs> yeah. The guy who did, who knows if his carvings were accurate, right? right? So when we get into fact simile three, there's actually an issue of how actually to interpret those. And to interpret them, you have to have some contextual idea. So Egyptology is really, a, if you're going to take a crack at it, you got to know some of that stuff. In any case, the outer ring of this amulet starts at the very top. And it's read counterclockwise. Okay. Joseph Smith said to be given in the own due time of the Lord. And that's what he said. You'll see uh, that's hieroglyphic. This section is hieroglyphic. This section is hieroglyphic. This section is hieroglyphic. He didn't interpret any of the hieroglyphs. He said the same thing about all of them in the own due time of the Lord. He did interpret all of the ideograms. <laughs> all okay. of the vignettes. Which is very also very interesting. <clears throat> but what does that outer ring say? The inscription written around the outer edge of the, the uh, hypocephalus represents the eye of Ra. So when you go to the St. George Tabern that tabernacle, the all-seeing eye up on the wall, which weirds uh, people out. Okay. That's the eye, that's the eye of God. Right. Borrowed from, you know, it's on the dollar bill, all this sort of stuff. Um, the eye on the Joseph Hypocephalus brought together. The god Osiris Ra, named Yebati, with the primal beginning in Heliopolis, and the reenactment of the, that creative moment in behalf of the deceased owner of the hypocephalus. What? Vicarious mm. stuff? And the owner of the hypocephalus was Osiris Sheshank. So his proper name was Sheshank. Poor guy. Sorry, I'm not going to go there. Well, what's really interesting is that he has added to his proper name, God's name. Mm. He's taken upon himself the name of God. Right. That sounds eerily. Who's ever heard of that? Yeah. Thus, in doing so, Sheshank is identified with the gods, which is what in subsequent discussions about the Egyptian Adama, that's a very big deal. His very name, Yevati, is the name of the robing room in the temples of Heliopolis. And wow. in both robing. Karnak and Medina Abu that I talked about, you can't enter the temple until you've been washed, anointed, and robed, clothed. For some reason, that sounds so familiar. Where have I heard that before? Oh, you're, I can't remember. You're just imagining stuff. Right. My, my bad. My bad. <laughs> The temples of Heliopolis, the place of endowment where he receives powers and attributes 
of divinity. When we get to that other topic, there's a, my favorite photograph in Hugh Nibley's Egyptian Endowment of the initiate at the end of making all of these covenants in that temple. At the very end, before he enters the, um, the throne room is what they call it. They call it the Holy Folies. <clears throat> before passing through the veil, it shows him embracing the God of the temple. A very specific embrace. Hmm. Hmm. And it says what the God of the temple is whispering in the ear of the initiate. Any endowed Latter-day Saint would read that and go, holy smokes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the look, same stuff in the same order. Look, and, and here's the thing, right? We know, and this is the part of the story we didn't really go into. We know that Abraham was in Egypt for for a while, right? Yeah, yeah. Even though we have an abbreviated version in in Genesis, and I would even say it's somewhat abbreviated in the Pearl of Great Price, right? Oh, the, of course it is. All of our scriptures are abbreviated. All of them. We know that he taught them astronomy. We know that he taught them many things. And I would imagine that Abraham, like any good minister of the gospel, is looking for converts. He's doing his missionary work. And in so doing, if Abraham was really there, we should expect to see these things line up, right? We should expect to see echoes of the knowledge that was passed on. The number of mentions in ancient literature of Abraham in Egypt, number in the hundreds, hundreds. There's a whole book about it, about just that thing. Let, let's not forget that, that Egypt, for whatever reason, seems to be very prominent throughout all of of the hebrew scriptures certainly right yeah. Yeah. you have joseph that gets sold into egypt later becomes egypt's hero then egypt promer you know figures in prominently by enslaving the hebrews and then christ goes back to egypt i shouldn't say back he goes to egypt to save a, his life yeah as a young child to save his life and so in, in many ways, we should very much expect to see these echoes coming out of Egypt, right? It seems to figure in very prominently. Well, and even more so. the Hebrew story. The book of Abraham, ironically, is the one that gives us the origin of Egypt. Right. Who found it, how they found it, and that Noah himself went there and blessed the first Pharaoh. Yep. And comment and praised the Pharaoh for being a wise and a just man. Yep, and th and that Pharaoh intentionally attempted to duplicate the order of the priesthood of the fathers. Yep, even though he did not have that authority, he was still trying to do a good thing. So we ask, why should there be any similarity between the early Egyptian rites and the endowment? That's why. Right. That first Pharaoh was trying to duplicate it, and how would he know? Because he had seen Noah do it. And and the implications for this are huge, which I think. Look, I, most of the time, I don't think it's a cabal. And Ham knew it. Sorry. What's that? And Ham knew it. I'm sorry. I was, it's, it's a, I was a yeah. big, big missing link. Ham knew it initially. The, yeah. The, 
the implications to this are huge. I don't feel like most of the time people who who try to um, say, hey, but the book of Abraham is false, are sitting around a smoke-filled back room making the stories up. I mean, maybe there's a couple. But I think most people are just kind of playing right into the adversary's hands. Sure. Because here, here's the thing. If this is what it appears to be, what I believe it to be, then the implications are massive, right? We we all of a sudden have record of an endowment that is ancient, right? So many, uh, and and I think they try their best. I, so I don't want to bag on them as as guys out there intentionally, you know, spreading falsehoods. But I've I've heard some LDS scholars and some Mormon scholars claim that you know, well, the LDS endowment is for us today. It doesn't have ancient roots. Well, I, I beg to differ on this. If if this is what it appears to be, and then we have all this other supporting evidence, the implications are huge. The implications then, then become you can see the consistent way God has dealt with his children all the but way through. Oh, my goodness. The, the, the temple rites are so foreign to modern humans. They're so different. Um. President Nelson, at a recent, oh, within the past few years, uh, when he was prophet, or when he, while he was prophet, um, at the end of the general conference, he said, I testify, and this is out of the blue, unrelated to his talk, but he said, I testify that our temple ordinances are of ancient origin. I got, I was like, yes, he's reading it too. This is awesome. He's no dummy. They know. And for me, in, in my book, right, under temple rites, I list all of the congruences and every aspect of what we do is there. I, you know, I don't connect the dots, so I don't give anything away that I'm not supposed to. But that section of my book alone is 50 pages. And for me to read, the, the, and the most exciting ones, are the accounts of Jesus Christ himself teaching temple rites to his disciples. I get so excited about doing that myself in the temple because I'm not just going through it out of a sense of duty. I'm going through it with my eyes open, knowing full well that Jesus taught the very same things, the same covenants, the same symbols, the right. same clothing. Well, and, and, and they did it. They did it as anciently as Egypt, for crying out loud. Well, and 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 here's an important thing too that that I have talked with a buddy of mine on on the podcast before, Joshua Erickson, who seeks to keep a lot of Hebrewism alive within yeah. Mormonism. Is that Mormonism and he and 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 the the Jewish religion share a lot of common traits, right? One of those traits are um we come to know our ancestors through um experience right we try to experience the same things they did right yeah. so if you look at like the passover right all those things are 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 trying to get you to put yourself into their place now you, me and you our views of adam are, are going to be a little different 
That's okay. <laughs> when are we going to have that conversation? <laughs> we'll have it someday, but <laughs> not today. <laughs> but what what I'll say is, is no matter how you view Abraham, I mean, excuse me, Adam, you're putting yourself in his place through the endowment. It is a very Hebrew. It is a very Jewish way of teaching. And it predates the Jews. Yes. Yes. That's a, that's the thing I love about it. It's not tied to any culture. It's not tied to the Jews. It's not tied to the Egyptians. It's not tied to the Americans. It's right. consistent. And that's, that, that, that's why that's, I think, probably my favorite section of my book. You see that consistent thread running through all these different cultures, teaching the same exact covenants. Yep. Same symbols, same verbiage. Yep. Absolutely. Same context. It's mind-blowing. Absolutely. Same clothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is so exciting to have that knowledge when you're doing it and the fervor that you feel with that knowledge that you're not doing something phony. You're doing something that was instituted right. specifically by God to help you consciously choose to follow him in very specific ways. I love that. <clears throat> Uh, speaking of that outer ring again, this translation of the text begins near the top of the outer ring, continues counterclockwise around the ring. Following is a transliteration and accompanying translation of that text by Egyptologist Michael Rhodes. I, so starting up here, I am Debati, who is adorned or clothed in the robing room in the house Benben in Heliop. The house Benben is the temple. Mm -hmm. So I am Osiris. I'm this God who is clothed in the robing room in the temple in Heliopolis. The house of Benben was a temple of Heliopolis in which the Holy of Holies was occupied by the pyramid-shaped Benben stone, which represents creation. So in the own due time of the Lord, well, when you go to the temple, that's the time of the Lord when you learn exactly what that outer ring is talking about. Right. And we could talk more about some of these other Egyptian things, but in the interest of time, we won't. But it talks about the sacred, taking upon yourself a sacred name. <clears throat> Facsimile two figure, what does that say? One. It's blocked by my Zoom thing. First, signifying the first creation nearest to the celestial or the residence of God. Is that Kolob? Is it? The god represented with the two ram-horned heads is Numra, the great creator, often portrayed at a potter's wheel, fashioning human beings. Numra is he who shines upon the earth and is creator of all things. Hmm. Mm -mm. Then this guy, sitting on a boat. <clears throat> That scepter that he's holding is an Egyptian hieroglyph, a symbol of power. Uh, and I don't know a lot of Egyptian, but there are ones that you see over and over again that have particular significance. I want to show you one just for, just for fun. It is this one here. It's the, it looks like a cross, but with a loop on it on the top. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's called the Ankh, and that's the symbol of eternal life. That's fascinating. And what we will see in the Egyptian endowment conversation we'll have later 
is that when the initiate goes through the temple, there are images of the god putting the ankh in the initiate's mouth, symbolic of bestowing eternal life. Wow. Uh, so god sitting upon his throne clothed with power and authority with a crown of eternal light upon his head representing also the grand keywords of the holy priesthood <clears throat> egyptologists will say the hawk-headed raw with the sun disc on his head sun disc crown of eternal light yep. yeah Seated on the solar bark, which we're going to learn the significance of later, in his hand, he holds the scepter, symbol of dominion, power. God sitting upon his throne with a crown of eternal light upon his head. Wow, he's good. He's a pretty good guesser. This is my favorite one. All right. I'm going to give you a stab. Use the spirit. Tell me what figure four is. Hmm. <laughs> See, I. this is why I would make a crappy prophet. <laughs> right. But, but that's my point. Who would? I mean, you know, if, you, if we were just taking a stab at this, well, it looks like a hood ornament to me on a rocking chair. I don't know. It's just dumb stuff. Well, this is it, this. Yeah, it, and and here, here's the other thing, right? Is that it's not like Joseph was kind of like, well, maybe it means this. He was bold, right? He put it out there, very succinctly. Rear, yeah, he he put his rear out there and said, no, no, that's what that is, <laughs> right? And said it with confidence and with with conviction, not knowing it wouldn't be proven correct for a hundred yes. years or better yes 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 huh. because i mean if you were just faking it surely somebody's going to find out about <laughs> it sooner or later right so this symbol signifies two things expanse or the firmament of the heavens and also egyptian meaning 1000 how, how the hell do we get that Egyptologists say the mummified hawk is what it is, is a symbol of the sky or as a representation of the expanse of heaven with wings outstretched. Wow, there's one. The Seker boat that it's sitting on is called the ship of a thousand. <laughs> Stop. Wow. That's a... That's, that's a, a double that's a double bonus. That's a hell of a bullseye. Ugh. Wow. I mean, let's just let's assume that he was only kind of close with the others, but nailed this one. It would still make you squint and go, how did he do that? Yeah. And here we have the sons of Horus again, <clears throat> which here he labels the earth in its four quarters. Oh, what does he mean by the four quarters? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, tying right back to the the to four cardinal directions. Yeah. Okay. So he and uh, the author of the book, he said, the consistency between those two is stunning. That's another lucky guess. Now, now let me ask you this: Is there any significance that that portion of of, of the vignette there 
is like inverted? Uh, I read once, I think it's just, I don't think so. I think it's just because it's on the bottom. And I think, the, well, if you go around the ring on the circle, I'm pointing with my finger. You can't see that those hieroglyphs are upside down also. Okay. So maybe, I don't know. I don't, if there is a significance, I'm not aware of it. Okay. Now we get to the most controversial facsimile of all. Facsimile number three. Abraham sitting on Pharaoh's throne. Not only that, he's gender confused. He's calling girls boys, but fit right in today. <laughs> so figure one, Abraham sits upon Pharaoh's throne by the politeness of the king with a crown upon his head representing the priesthood as emblematic of the grand presidency in heaven with the scepter of justice and judgment in his hand. <clears throat> there are enough instances where Abraham appears in context normally occupied by Osiris that we must conclude Egyptians did see some sort of connection between Pharaoh mm -hmm. and Abraham. It is especially noteworthy, as seen above, that Abraham appears as a substitute for Osiris in ways associated with the judgment of the dead or a post-mortem declaration of the deceased's worthiness. Mm. Mm. This next one uh, was probably the weirdest one of all. Boy or girl? I mean, look. It's I, a girl. They girl. Say, right. It's a girl. And look, she's got the onk in her hand. Mm -hmm. The key to eternal life. Anyway. Um, what does that say? I can't see it. Uh, whose name is given in the characters above his head. Um, can you? What is that? I can't even remember what I put there. Um, and we'll go up real quick. With the idea of the great lady Isis actually personifying the throne. And no, at the very top, facsimile three, figure two, something, something, whose name is given. Hold on one In the characters second. above his head. Uh, King, oh, King Pharaoh. Okay. King Pharaoh. So Joseph has taken this girl and double whammied himself. No, this is King Pharaoh, and whose name is given in the characters above his head. Mm -hmm. which people have interpreted. We've read that. And it doesn't say Pharaoh, it says Isis. What's going on? With the idea of the great lady, Isis actually personifying the throne, and thereby the Egyptian kingship, the incongruity, because there's precedent that Isis represents kingship. Okay. The, the incongruity of Joseph Smith's identification figure two, in fact, simile as King Pharaoh begins to dissolve. But I read something very interesting. That's another possibility. And I, I remember getting, I got this off of some debate page and I couldn't source it again. I'm glad I copied it. But these aren't my words. I have been quotations, but I don't know who it was that said it because it's, as the internet goes, it's gone. Right. 
but makes a very interesting point. Here's what Joseph Smith actually said in his facsimile three figure two explanation. King Pharaoh, whose name is given in the characters above his head. Joseph's use of the word head in figure two should stick out like a sore thumb in contrast to his use of the word hand in other instances. And all the other uh, uh, figures, he said, the name is above their hand. It's above their hand. It's above their hand. In the case of figure two, he didn't say that. In figures four and five, Joseph refers to the characters above the hand right. and above his hand, respectively. But in figure two, he says, above his head, not above his hand. If Joseph wanted to refer to the characters above figure two's hand, he could have said hand like he did in the other cases, but he didn't. So what is above figure two's head? That. that. His, name, his name is given in the characters above his head. The characters above the hand don't give the name of Pharaoh, but the characters above the head give some interesting convergences with Joseph's explanation. The symbol is a sun disk with horns, which often represents the house of Horus. Egypt and Horus is who? The king. Okay. Egyptologists might not recognize it as representing that in this context, but it does nevertheless have that underlying meaning, thus giving a convergence with the name of Pharaoh, which is Horus, as Joseph Smith said. Mm. That's cool. That was I not too long ago I learned that. That was really neat. Oh. Figure five, that stupid hat. Hey, I would wear that hat in public. I would pay for you to wear that hat and take a photograph. <laughs> Shulam, signifying the, the uh, principal waiters. Shulam. So he act, Joseph actually gives a name to this character, Shulam. As John Gee has documented this name, Shulam, where did he get that name? Mm -hmm. Probably a neighboring town in upstate New York or something. Ohio, yes. Shulam, Ohio, right? No doubt. No, no. As, as John Gee has documented, this name is widely attested in Semitic languages mm. from the time of Abraham. Mm. That's like hitting the bullseye of the bullseye. Yeah. This includes attestations in Old Akkadian, Old Assyrian, Old Babylonian, Middle Babylonian, Eblite, and Ugaritic. So that name was all over the place. Why? Additionally, Shulam's title, the king's principal waiter, is arguably attested in ancient Egypt. In particular, the title butler of the ruler is a fairly close match to King's principal waiter and is attested during the time of Abraham. Hmm. Man, he hit three targets in a row. Bam, bam, bam. Just by pulling the name Shulam out of the hat. Yeah, and it's so random, right? I mean, it's not... Like, yeah. it's not even one of the... Primary players, if you will. Right. It's not significant to the plan of salvation. No. He's just showing off. He's not showing off. He's just... What has impressed me in my studies over the years 
you know, you always believe in inspiration revelation. But what I have learned about the revelation given to Joseph Smith is how specific it is. The degree of specificity is down to the very text, to the very word, to the very spelling of a word. When I can recognize in the Dead Sea Scrolls a phrase from the veil at the temple as being almost identical in context and in order, Revelation is very specific, right down to the names. So back up there a second. Up there above everybody's heads and hands, you see all the inscriptions. Do we know what any of those mean? I'm sure we do. And I was, I knew that you were going to ask me something that I was not prepared to answer. And that's one of them. Okay. No problem. I, I haven't, I don't have anything uh, identifying what those hieroglyphs, because they're hieroglyphs, what those are. Don't except for it. the, except for the one who identifies uh, ISIS. Anyway. In the opening chapter of the book of Abraham mentions a location named the plain of Olisham. There's Joseph Smith making up names again, like his crazy Book of Mormon names. Korhor, Aha. Right. Uh, that's in Abraham chapter 1, verse 10. This plain of Olisham was near, according to the book, it was near Abraham's homeland of Ur of the Chaldees, according to the book of Abraham. In 1985, that was a good year for me. A Latter-day Saint archaeologist named John Lundquist published a pioneering article situating the Book of Abraham in a plausible ancient geographical and cultural environment in northern Mesopotamia. Among the points discussed by Lundquist was the plausible identification of Olsham, identifying where planes were. <laughs> identifying it with an ancient place name called Ulusum or Ulusum. Lundquist pointed to inscriptional evidence dating to the time of the Akkadian king, Naram Sin, who reigned around the time of Abraham. Abraham. Yep. Which spoke of Ulusham in what is today northern Syria or southern Turkey. Furthermore, in 2013, non-LDS excavators at the Turkish site of Oylemhoyuk near the Syrian border announced that it was the ancient Ulushum mentioned in the inscription of Naramsin and identified it as the city of Abraham. Oh, <laughs> oh that's nuts. Oh. Have you had enough? I think this is my last section. You know, again, we look at this and I don't want anyone who's listening or watching to take for granted how absolutely stupid the idea is that somebody from the 1830s is going to have that. It's, it's, it's absolutely asinine. But yet there it is, right? Not backed up by some remote Hebrew scholar somewhere, by modern-day Egyptologists. Who, who see the same, who, who come back to prove Joseph Smith correct mm -hmm. with no vested interest in doing so. Yeah. Now, take what you just said, add to that 
an unprecedented knowledge of ancient American culture, right? And archaeology, plus ancient knowledge that no one else had of Enoch or Moses that is verified. I mean, that's my stupid book. 179 of those teachings that came to us through Joseph Smith have been attested thousands of times in books that he had zero access to. Yeah. And that's why Joseph Smith was so good. Because if I had I... that kind of capability, you bet you I'd be visiting a bookie. <laughs> and that's what was cool about him, too. He didn't... Uh, didn't abuse didn't, it. Well, no, he didn't really care about money. No. Himself. He cared about money in regard to building up the kingdom. Right. He was always giving his away. Yep. He was terrible <laughs> with money. <laughs> but I have to like that. All right. So... This is taking straight out of my book. Okay. Some of these, so proof is in the pudding. In Abraham 1, 15, 16, Abraham says, I lifted up my voice unto the Lord, my God. The Lord hearkened and heard. He filled me with the vision of the Almighty. The angel of his presence stood by me. So he's, he's being sacrificed, right? And this happens. And immediately unloosed my bands, and his voice was unto me, Abraham, Abraham. Behold, my name is Jehovah, and I have heard thee. There is an um, ancient authentic text called the Apocalypse of Abraham. I'll tell you a little bit about it because it's referred to a lot. Very exciting. The Apocalypse of Abraham survives in six manuscripts written in Old Slavonic. Although the Slavonic version of the Apocalypse of Abraham was made in the 11th or 12th centuries of AD, the original language of the Apocalypse of Abraham is Hebrew and was most likely composed in Palestine at the end of the first century. Wow. Very old. And again, it's most likely a copy of the original account, original account of Abraham. And this is what it says. Look how it starts. Apocalypse of Abraham was not translated by a Mormon. Nope. And it came to pass. Hmm. I had this conversation with my good Christian friend who was making fun of the 1,300 and some and it came to passes in the book of Mormon. I said, you know what that means, right? The further back you go in time, the closer you get to Egyptian culture, the more, and it came to pass you see showing up in literature. Yep. Yep. Because a... that's how they wrote because they had no punctuation. Right. And then and so it happened, and it came to pass. And it came to pass, as I was thinking things like these with regard to my father, Terah, in the court of my house, the voice of the mighty one came down from heavens in a stream of fire, pillar mm. of fire, saying and calling, Abraham, Abraham. Mm. And later on, then a voice came speaking to me twice, Abraham, Abraham. I'll just... Hey. Any chance, any chance that Joseph Smith had access to the apocalypse of Abraham? Zero. Okay. Why? Zero. It hadn't been discovered yet. Okay. Uh, the only of, of these, all of these ancient texts, I, I cite 66 in my book. Right. The only one that had been translated into English during Joseph Smith's lifetime was First Enoch. In 18, it had been translated in 1821 
by um, an Episcopalian uh, uh, priest who was castigated for it. For, and it sat in manuscript form, gathering dust until after Joseph Smith knew about it. It had been translated into English and published by, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, I think by the late 1830s. Okay. But there is no possible way he had access to First Enoch before then, okay. before the Book of Mormon, <laughs> Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. All of those predate that. So all and of a first, sudden, the Book of Abraham starting to seem a lot more durable than what a lot of people were hoping. I know. So many people run away from it, but the evidence for it is overwhelming. But it's so obscure that nobody wants to touch it. I mean, because you got to dig. And, right. and the debates and discussions, the criticisms are a little bit convoluted uh, because of the ancient Egyptian stuff. But the evidence is all in favor. Uh, in Abraham chapter 1, verse 2, what we were talking about earlier, Abraham desires great knowledge. Right. I sought for the blessings of the fathers. <clears throat> And the right whereunto I should be ordained to administer the same, having been myself a follower of righteousness, desiring also to be one who possessed great knowledge and to be a follower of righteousness and to possess a greater knowledge and to be a father of many nations and a prince of peace, desiring to receive instructions and to keep the commands of God. I became a rightful heir, a high priest, holding the right belonging to the fathers. In another ancient apocryphal text of abraham called the testament of abraham it says and now master lord heed my plea while i am yet in this body i wish to see all the inhabited world and all the created things which you established master through mm. one word and when i have seen these things then if i depart from life i shall have no sorrow he wanted to see that vision that was granted unto moses and others yeah He learns astronomy from God, according to the book of Abraham. I, Abraham, had the Urim and Thummim, which, which the Lord my God had given unto me in Ur of the Chaldees. And I saw the stars, that they were very great. One of them was nearest the throne of God, and there were many great ones which were near unto it. Astronomy. Apocalypse of Abraham. I, the angel, will ascend on the wings of birds. Oh. That sounds like something we, we saw just a few moments ago. Right? To show you, Abraham, what is in the heavens, on the earth, and in the sea, and in the abyss, and in the lower depths, in the Garden of Eden, and in its rivers, in the fullness of the universe. And you will see its circles, which I would interpret as orbits. Right. Hmm. Abraham receives the angel from God, which we read about. And right. so it happened here. Um, and behold, there was no breath of man, and my spirit was amazed. My soul fled from me. I became like stone. I fell face on the earth. There was I was no longer strength to stand up. And while I was face down on the ground, I heard the voice speaking, Go, Yael of the same name, through the me. So this is God sending the angel, whose name is Yael, through the mediation of my ineffable name, Christ. Consecrate this man, Abraham, for me and strengthen him against his trembling. The angel he sent to me in the likeness of a man came and he took me by my right hand and stood me on my feet. 
Mm. and said to me, stand up, Abraham, friend of God, who has loved you. Let human trembling not unfold you, for lo, I am sent to you to strengthen you, to bless you in the name of God, creator of heaven and earthly things, who has loved you. Be bold and hasten to him. I am EOL. I was called so by him who causes those with me on the seventh expanse, or as Paul called it, the seventh heaven, on the firmament to shake a power through the immediate movement's ineffable name in me. Abraham seeks one true God. You are searching for the God of gods, the creator in the understanding of your heart. I am he. I am. Mm. And here again, here I am. The older is I, for I am, the, I am before the world and mighty, the God who created previously before the light of the age and so on and so forth. Because you desired to search for me and I called you my beloved. Uh, what was this one? Showing him the last days. That he may see the whole world. Abraham, here's the very significant reference that in the, in uh, in the facsimile number three, for Abraham sitting on the throne and teaching astronomy to Pharaoh's court. In this text, pseudo Eupolemus, Abraham lived in Heliopolis, where the temple is, with the Egyptian <laughs> priests, and taught them much. He explained astrology and the other sciences to them, saying that the Babylonians and he himself had obtained this knowledge. However, he attributed the discovery of them to Enoch. Enoch first discovered astrology, not the Egyptians. Hmm. Did you mean astronomy or isn't? No, well, they say astrology. Okay. But in the ancient, in the ancient world, I think they were very, I mean, they were inevitably... You, you couldn't really talk about one without talking about the other. Okay. So, all right. <clears throat> so summing this all up, John Gee, how could Joseph Smith have known this material? Joseph Smith published the Book of Abraham in 1842. It was 1851 when Heinrich Bruch first translated a hieratic papyrus into a European language. That was the first time anybody had translated Egyptian. It was 1852 when Emmanuel de Rouge translated the first hieroglyphic inscription into a modern language. The inscriptions that tell us about the Egyptians ruling over ancient Syria and Abraham's day was first published in 2008. The first inscription mentioning Olshim was published in 1928. The Eudremia autobiography was first published in 1949. The reality of human sacrifice, we didn't even talk about that. Book of Abraham says that the Egyptians had practiced human sacrifice. Everybody goes, no, they didn't. Yeah, they kind of did. The reality of human sacrifice in ancient Egypt was established in 1993. The mm. work on covenants was first put together in 2012. And our knowledge of the Canaanite dynasties in Egypt came in 1997. So Joseph Smith published the book of Abraham about 160 years 
too early. <laughs> he could not have known about these things. And we can't compare them to those things because the book of Abraham is true. Carrie mm. Milstein. Each of the three Egyptian representations or facsimiles, Joseph Smith said, were associated with Abraham, actually was associated with him by ancient Egyptians. No plausible explanations have been posed for the many striking consistencies in the book of Abraham with non-biblical traditions regarding Abraham. A few such traditions that were not known in Joseph Smith's day, but which agree with the book of Abraham are that one, those who were disrupting the worship of idols in Abraham's society were killed. Two, Abraham prayed for deliverance when he was about to be killed because of his disruption of idol worship. Three, the priest or leader who was trying to kill him was killed instead. Four, Abraham was heir to the priesthood because of his fathers. Five, Abraham possessed a Urim and Thummim. What? Six, people think like Mormons invented the concept of Urim and Thummim. Right, I know, I know. It, it that... And why that is, I do not know. But it's mentioned in the Old Testament. Yeah, it's obscure, but it's there. Six, Abraham possessed records of his fathers. Seven, there was a famine in Abraham's homeland. Eight, uh, and Haran died in, uh, in the famine. The fact that Joseph Smith did not know of these details and other similarities from ancient sources, yet they agree so well with ancient sources, is striking understatement of the evening. That's all I have to say. Okay. So I feel like you've given the audience enough ammo that they can stand up to anybody on this issue. This was thorough. This was well done and well thought out. Thank you. So thank you for that. But let me I, ask. I, I do. I, I forgot. For people who want to source this stuff for themselves, there are two simple resources the first one is easy and absolutely free pearl of great price central dot org yeah dang it org or com pearl great price central dot com one um, one one or the other i mean yeah anyway that gives all of this stuff with pictures it's beautiful and it talks about book of Moses. It, all yeah, it's amazing the other is John Gee's brief and insightful an introduction to the book of Abraham, where he talks about all of these items with pictures. So, Ken, would the book Mormon Doctrine in the Apocrypha and a Concordance of the Teachings <laughs> of... Oh, and another book. Let me show you that picture. Would that be there too? I'm just curious. Here's a nice book. That one right there. Where would somebody find that book? Well, if they come to my house, I'll give them a copy. Or you can get it on Amazon. I would go to Amazon. And can you not need to talk about being a capitalist when we're done with this one? It's a funny so, little book and it has a really long title. But it's full of fascinating things that I didn't write. I found them. So let me ask you this. Like I said, this was well thought out. This was well done. You really did your homework on this. What would you tell someone who came to you and said, look, I'm really struggling with this book of Abraham thing? Because 
even though this was well put together, if if you just throw this at them, you're going to overwhelm them, right? So how 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 do we navigate those waters with people then when they're having those kind of doubts? Um, the first thing I say to people like that is, well, a couple of things. Number one, you're not the first person to have these questions. People have been studying these issues for decades. I began my study of it in 1987 and before. Um, number two, there are answers for every single one of these issues. And they are free to access. The other resource I forgot is fairlatterdaysaint.com. Fairlatterdaysaints.org.com. Well, I'm such an idiot. Oh, well, I've been, I've been here. Let me find it here because I have sources all over the place in here. Pearl of Great Price Central.org is the one. Um, and Fair Latter-day Saints together, they deal with every single doubt, every single question. They give thorough and scholarly answers and they're not um, rude about it, you know. Uh, they're, they're very scholarly. They intend to be scholarly. Um, the second, the third thing is find somebody. I mean, the first reassurance is you need to know that these questions have already been answered many mm -hmm. times by people far smarter than any of us. And who've spent their lives and professionals who've studied this out. Okay. And the, the third thing is you, of course, as the questioner, are free to live as you choose. And I will fight for your right to do that. All I would say is I hope that you make those decisions in an informed way so that you don't jump to a life's choice and later come to learn that you had been deceived. Right. So take, just slow down, take your time. It's very important, not only to find the online resources, but to find someone you can trust to hear you out and to not judge you and to not, but who has experience with this, these things so they can calmly guide you through the questions. And at the very least, give you the other side of the story. Absolutely. I when and then and then make your choice, yeah. I I deal with with probably three to four emails a week with people really struggling with their testimony of the gospel as a whole. Yeah. And and my first piece of advice is I know it feels like your world is collapsing, but just breathe and sit with that for a moment. Yeah. Right. I, I've also told people the fact you're asking questions shows a level of maturity. The questions are good. The, the, they are good. You should ask those questions because if you are basing your life around this, you should absolutely ask some very pointed questions to make sure that it's true. And there are answers to everything except right. why Abraham was wearing striped clothing. We don't know that. Yeah, somebody, I'm going to get somebody, to does. <laughs> somebody does. His tailor, his tailor needs to be brought to justice for that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, 
but, <laughs> but, but look, as, as Ken and I have said, don't take our word for it, right? We'll point you in a direction, right? Here's all this data. Go look at it. Anybody who tell, comes to you, and, th- and this is my other big warning. Anybody who comes to you and says authoritatively, you can just take what I say here. Yeah, I never trust anybody who says, trust me. (laughs) Right, no, don't trust anybody. Don't trust me. I'm a clown with a microphone, right? I mean, between me and Ken, you can probably hit your wagon to Ken a little bit, but don't don't do it to me. (laughs) You're going to be sorely, sorely disappointed. But don't allow yourself to to be co-opted by somebody else's movement is the other thing I'd say. Yeah. Right? Do your own homework. And do an honest assessment. Um, well, and by honest assessment, like we said at the beginning, if you haven't examined both sides or all sides of a question or an issue, you're not prepared to make an informed decision. No. And and you're you're very nice. You keep saying that people aren't out there trying to deceive you. There's a few. The, I'm not going to. Most lie. part that's Here's true, some. but I I will quote to you the one of the founders of exmormon.org said that he fantasized, those, these are his words, he fantasized about a full-blown faith-destroying session with Mormons. Or, well, my first thought is, is once he discovers a, girls, his fantasies will go other places, but. Well, the, along those lines, a less sophisticated uh, a student uh, or a friend of my ward who'd been in high school, had a friend in high school who said, I want to break as many Mormon girls as I can. Jeez. So yeah, there's some for sure. And look, and I don't, and I don't think there are few. You don't. No. See, I, 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 I want to believe the best, right? I, I do. Well, I appreciate that. Satan seeks to sift us as wheat. Right. He's Satan's not going after sinners. He's going right. after good people. He's the destroyer. And he has minions, some of whom are doing it cognizantly, some of them who are doing so ignorantly and out of selfishness. But we have to yeah. we have to uh, how does Paul put it in Ephesians? Work out our own salvation with fear and trust. Gird yourselves. Gird yourselves with the armor of God, the helmet of, helmet of salvation, right? breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of peace, and most of all, the sword of truth. You know, I go back to something that Thomas Jefferson once said, and he was writing a letter. I could, I could be misquoting here, but I believe it was his nephew. His parents had died. And he was he was of age, but he was still a young man. And Jefferson wrote him this letter. And he said, look, when it comes to mathematics, know these. When studying philosophy, know this. In matters of religion, question with boldness the very existence of God. Yeah. Because God would surely welcome honest questioning over blindfolded fear. I also agree with what J. Reuben Clark once said, which is if we have the truth, we shouldn't bo- we shouldn't be bothered with this idea of scrutiny, right? Because if it's true, it can't be harmed. And if it's not true, well, it kind of should, 
mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But the key there, nothing the, to fear in the truth, right? The 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 key there is to do honest research, right? Do not do not start with well, this has to be false, so I'm going to go look for that evidence, right? Start with the the if you're honestly questioning, go with that. You don't know. That's okay. Listen to to the anti-Mormon side. Listen to the evidence Ken just laid out, and then make your decision. Yeah, but well, and sometimes it's also a matter of being brutally honest with yourself. Right. I have, I have friends who have left the faith because they wanted they they wanted the great and spacious building and everything that goes along with that right and the anti-mormon criticisms were a convenient way for them to do that and you know what that's okay too i mean god will force no man to heaven your will your will is the one thing god will never force himself upon he'll he'll part the red sea he will cause miracles to happen manna to fall from heaven but will never violate your free will yeah the self-determination yeah the self-determination has been the rule from from eternities <laughs> i mean it is the prime directive right right Absolutely. you have the right to choose your own destiny and God will never forego that because guess what? It doesn't work. Nope. Never has and it never will. Nope. So, well, Ken, this was awesome. And uh, for everyone listening, Ken and I have a few other subjects we're going to broach together <laughs> throughout the year that I think you guys are going to be very interested in hearing. So, so stay tuned for all that. Ken, is there anything else you want to say as we, we wrap this up? Um. Just thank you. Oh, thank dude. you. I sometimes I wish we could just sit around as a big group and just I know about it. You know, I know, I know. Talk. But the the thing I love about this is, especially with the slides, that there I prepared for almost anything in the discussion because I got all my ducks in a row, and uh, and just the opportunity to re- review all this literature and put it down in one big presentable package. Um, it was a lot of work, but a lot of fun. And yeah, no, exhilarating. I exhilarating. My my stupid skeptical mind it keeps reverting to this skepticism. Not like I quit or have doubts or that sort of thing, but your mind gets calloused because you forget. But when you go over these things point by point, right, all in one sitting, it is overwhelming. Right, overwhelmingly exciting to think that the restored gospel and the plan of salvation. And eternal life and exaltation potentially is uh, our destiny. It's absolutely. It's, it's the truth. Absolutely. It's, it's not the greatest fairy tale ever told. No, no. And, and yeah. Yep. No, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I can't deny it. Even if I wanted to. Even if I was the guy who partook of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, fruit of the tree of life. And said, no, nah, I'm going to go to the great and spacious building. Even if I was that right. guy, I could not deny the truth of what I know. I mean, it would, would not go well for me knowing all that. But right. fortunately, as I was telling my Sunday school class, I like 
being with other saints. I love yeah. the goodness. I like being a faithful husband. Yeah. I like trying to be a good dad and loving my kids and having a, my wife is my best friend and all that entails and looking forward to an, e an eternity of goodness and service to the extent that I'm able, you know, right. And, and I'm especially looking forward to not, my, my secret dream is that the millennium will come and save me from becoming old and decrepit. I have, I, I don't know. I just, well, I think it's you important to raise your kids in the millennium. How cool would that be? Well, right. As far as old and decrepit, I will see. I, I always defer back to what Indiana Jones said. It's more about the mileage than the years. So, <laughs> but awesome. Well, Ken, dude, great stuff as always. I appreciate it, man. My pleasure. Thank you, David. All right. Bye, everybody. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast.